we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned in to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palo and Pakana. We're recording here on Luchuita, but as we are a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and excitingly, I'm joined by a new co-host today, Katia Bando. Today, we're talking to master's student Sylvie King, who is researching zooplankton at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Sciences. She's working in affiliation with the Australian Antarctic Partnership Programme and the Integrated Marine Observing System. But I'm going to go pass on over to my co-host to explain a bit more about Sylvie's work. Thanks, Ollie. Um, And it's such a pleasure to have you here, Sylvie. Sylvie is an amazing researcher, science communicator and nature lover who has recently been involved in some awesome community outreach. Sylvia is also a longtime friend of mine, so I'm extremely excited to interview um, her and share her amazing work with the world. And as Ollie said, this is my first time co-hosting. So um, just to briefly introduce myself, my name is Katia Bando and I'm a PhD student in plant science here in Hobart. So hopefully you'll be hearing more from me in the coming episodes. Okay, Sylvie. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast as well. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so my name's Sylvie. I grew up in Brisbane in Queensland uh, and I moved down to Tasmania in 2019 to begin my undergrad uh, where I studied the Bachelor of Marine and Antarctic Science and since then got absolutely hooked on Tasmania and here I am five years later uh, now in the final stages of completing my Master's of Marine Science. Great. That's awesome. So we've known each other for a little while and I've known you to always have a passion for the ocean. So um, can you expand a little bit on what studying marine science means to you? Yeah, absolutely. For sort of as long as I can remember, the ocean has been a really important part of my life. I've got grandparents who live up in Townsville and uh, on the Sunshine Coast as well. So a lot of my childhood was spent uh, surfing, snorkeling, uh, fishing, out on boats, sailing. um, And my parents were sort of hard pressed to keep my siblings and myself out of the ocean. I learned to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef and I think... From that moment on, I was a bit of a goner because all of a sudden I had this big realisation that not only was the ocean super important to me on a personal level, but uh, it's also this massive part of our earth that contains so much life that's so interconnected and complicated and and beautiful. And I think at that point I knew that I was going to end up doing something with the ocean uh, later on in my life. That's great. Um, I was wondering if there was sort of anything in particular that drew you to science in marine systems? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I have, I've I've always sort of been really engaged by science through school and everything. I had a really great teacher uh, in primary school who was very, um, 
was very passionate about science as well and that really uh, got my attention and uh, you know little 10 year old me was absolutely blown away by this idea of the scientific method and you know being able to use these tools to kind of understand the world around us Um, and so yeah science has always been something that's I've really enjoyed and been really fascinated by Um, and so I think that kind of paired with uh, yeah my passion for the ocean and and the importance that it has to me kind of it was a bit of a no-brainer that I'd end up in marine science eventually. (laughs) Yeah great Um, so you mentioned that you sort of grew up around the Great Barrier Reef Mm. So why Tasmania? It's a lot colder down here. <laughs> why why the Great Southern Reef over the Great Barrier yeah, Reef in, yeah. in no, Queensland? No, it's a, it's a great question. It's something that I ask myself every winter. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, Townsville and the Great Barrier Reef and, and, and you know, tropical, tropical oceans, they'll always hold a very special place in my heart. But um, I, there, there's something about temperate marine systems that always really connected with me. Uh, and I think in part it was probably because it's so different to what I was used to and uh you know uh, finishing high school Tasmania felt like a long way away from home and um I I think it was a big adventure for me to to sort of move out of home and and move away and and start to study something that I'm I wasn't very familiar with so I think that's probably the big reason why why I always wanted to come to Tasmania was um, yeah, to have that big adventure and, and explore this new world. Yeah, great. Okay, so big question. <laughs> your your master's research, yeah. um, tell us all about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, my area of interest is, is Southern Ocean Zooplankton and my project this year specifically focuses on the evaluation of modelled zooplankton biomass estimates. So that's essentially where uh, here in Australia we have uh, an ocean sea ice model that simulates zooplankton biomass in the world's oceans and I'm seeing how well the model can do that using in situ observations. And what exactly is zooplankton? Yeah, great question. Uh, so so plankton is essentially a, an organism that can't swim very well against the current. So they go wherever the ocean takes them. Um, they're not very... They're not strong swimmers, I suppose. And then the zoo part of that is is animals. So zooplankton are the animal components of the planktonic community. Um, yeah. So am I right in thinking that plankton in SpongeBob SquarePants is zooplankton? Yeah, I think he would be. Okay, I, I cool. think I think he fits the criteria for an animal. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, stick with us for part two as we dive deeper into Sylvie's current research on zooplankton in the Southern Ocean. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about all things marine. My name is Katia Bando, and I'm joined by Ollie Dove, along with master's student Sylvie King from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies. Um, so you mentioned before the break what zooplankton are. I'm a little bit interested in why we should study them if they're this tiny creature. What's what's their importance? Yeah, no, it's... Again, a really good question and um, one I get a lot because you they, they are, like broadly speaking, microscopic. So oftentimes you, you can't even see them um, with the naked eye. And so it, there is this question of, of why are they important and, and why should we study them? But there's uh, actually loads of reasons why zooplankton are really, really important for us to study. And so the big ones are sort of, first and foremost, they are a really important uh, trophic link between um, 
the phytoplankton, which are the the plant plankton, basically. So they're the primary producers of the southern ocean uh, of the of the ocean. Um, so the, the zooplankton then eat the phytoplankton, and then the zooplankton act as a food source to you know all the bigger animals that we know and love, like uh, you know fish and seals and penguins and whales and all of these big megafauna that you know you you, you see in the David Attenborough documentary. So without the without the zooplankton, we don't have these big animals. So they're a really important uh, component of the ecosystem in, in that regard. Uh, not only that. Because zooplankton have uh, really short life cycles and they're quite temperature dependent as well, changes to the zooplankton community or in in abundance and distribution, that kind of thing can be a really good indicator of areas of accelerated environmental change. And this is obviously very topical at the moment. We're seeing lots of big changes in the Southern Ocean in regards to climate change. So if we can identify where the zooplankton communities are changing, we can uh, identify regions where there's also probably going to be big ecological shifts in, in those upper trophic level species. Wow, who would have thought that little little animals in the ocean have such a huge impact? Yeah, That's yeah absolutely. Great. So you mentioned that your project is modelling-based. Where are you getting your data from? Yeah, yeah. So um, the modelling data that I'm working with – so, well, I'm working with two two big data sets, and that's the model data set and then the observational data set. So the model data comes from version two of the Australian Community Climate and Earth System Simulator Ocean Sea Ice Model, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Try and say that three times fast. <laughs> um, but this is a high-resolution model that um, – has a biogeochemical component that simulates uh, where it simulates zooplankton biomass. And so this model splits the ocean into grid cells and, and the the version that I'm working with is is 0.1 degree by 0.1 degree, so really, really high resolution. Um, and so it splits the ocean into all these grid cells and then for each grid cell, for every day, for every of every year from, I think... I think about 61 years is the runtime. The part, the last 61 years, it uh, simulates what the zooplankton biomass would have been in that area of the ocean. Um, so working with huge amounts of data. Um, and then on the other side of that, um, to sort of see how well the model is performing, we need observations. Um, and that's where I'm working with the continuous plankton recorder data set, uh, or CPR. And the CPR is a really, really cool piece of kit. It's basically... If you imagine almost like a metal shoebox that you tow behind a boat, it you, you can tow it for sort of uh, kilometres at a time, like super, super long transects. Uh, and it has a spool of a really fine mesh inside it that is wound up as the water filters through and this captures the plankton. And um, what that means is the, the rate that the, the mesh spools uh, – is linked to the rate that the ship is travelling, which means you can kind of geolocate each of this, each section of, of the mesh, and that means you can figure out where each sample is coming from in the ocean, and that means it's a really easy, um, convenient way to continuously monitor plankton over large stretches of ocean, which is um, really important for detecting change over time. And the by far the coolest thing about it is so this the CPR was kind of or the CPR program was established in 1931 and has remained relatively unchanged since then so it's I think about 90 years it's been going for and because it the methodology has basically not changed we can compare the samples that were collected in 1931 to those that were collected today which is uh, pretty unique for a lot of um, ocean data sets and then so this program has been operating in the southern ocean since 1991 so not quite as long as in the northern hemisphere but it's still by far the longest planktonic record in the southern ocean which is really really cool data to be working with. That is super cool. And having long-term 
data sets in all fields of science mm. are important, but why are they specifically important in the field of zooplankton research? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically because the Southern Ocean is it's remote and it's difficult to access, but it it is quite variable as well. There's like lots of big currents and eddy fields and that kind of thing that mean it has really unique oceanographic structure, um, which has implications for the biology. It's important for us to have broad scale observations in order to capture that variability because if you just sample one place one time, you're not you're just not able to um, get a really deep understanding of of what is going on. Over on a, on a broader scale. And how do the simulated data and the observed data go together? How do you merge those two data streams? Yeah, so what I do is I, I have the CPR um, count data. So that exists where uh, someone has gone through each of the samples and kind of essentially counted the number of each type of zooplankton. And I've converted that into a rough biomass estimate um, using some some fancy equations that I won't go into detail here because I'll bore the listeners to death. Um, so I have my rough uh, biomass uh, estimate from the observations and then I have the biomass estimate from the model. And then I've... Uh, created a bunch of, of very pretty graphs that uh, essentially directly compare the two and see um, how – so you can visually compare how the well the model is performing compared to the observations, but then there's also skill metrics that I can do, which is a bunch more math. So I, I'm doing a lot more maths than I bargained for. I came head, down here to do a biology degree and now I'm doing maths. So, you know, you never know where the, where the world's going to take you. But, um, yeah, so I – uh, can uh, calculate these skill metrics which give me a quantitative uh, estimate or a, yeah, a quantitative um, measure of how well the model has actually uh, simulated the, the um, zooplankton biomass. Are there any findings from your thesis that you're able to share or anything that's stuck out so far? Yeah, yeah. So we've got some really interesting findings so far which is super exciting. Um the two, so the two big ones so far is I've looked at how well the model has performed on a, over a monthly mean time scale. So that's where you know uh, I might have some observations from January of 1991, and I've com- compared that to the model uh, simulation from January of 1991. And so I've I've done that for the sea ice zone, so which is a, a really undersampled part of a specifically undersampled part of the Southern Ocean, um, and from that we've basically unsurprisingly concluded that we don't have enough observations to see how well the model's performing. However, we have also looked at how well the model performs over the monthly climatology, which is where you average all of the Januaries over the whole time series and all of the Februaries, and, and, and that way you get an idea of the seasonal cycle, which is another really important part of the Southern Ocean because um, in because uh, winter and summer are so different in terms of light availability and that kind of thing. Uh, there's really strong seasonal cycles in terms of how much phytoplankton there are and therefore how much zooplankton there is. And what we've found is the model actually captures that really well. Um, so the model is picking up that seasonal cycle really nicely, which is really great to see. That's so cool. And on mm. a slightly random technological note, do yep. you work with this huge data set on just an average laptop or do you <laughs> use a supercomputer? No, I do use a supercomputer. Okay. <laughs> I, I think my laptop would would just self-combust. It would just auto- yeah, combust if I tried to do it on my own laptop. So, yeah, I use the National Computational Infrastructure, which is Australia's big supercomputer in Canberra. Um, I remote into that and it does all the all the hard work for me. I just sit there and run code. <laughs> 
Stick with us, listeners, for part three as we take a little dip into Sylvie's work with communicating her research and science outreach. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are diving around and exploring the underwater world. My name is Katya Bando, and I'm joined with Ollie Dove, along with Antarctic zooplankton researcher Sylvie King from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science. So Sylvie, while you were an undergraduate, you got the incredible opportunity to spend some time on the CSIRO Antarctic research vessel called the Investigator. Can you tell us a little bit about your time on the boat? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a volunteer member of the science party. We were uh, and we were at sea for about 56 or 57 days, I think. So we didn't see land for that entire time, which was definitely a, um, uh, a plunge into the deep end of, of Antarctic field work. So we travelled down to the sub-Antarctic, to the um, Kerguelen Plateau, where we were doing some geological research. So um, investigating whether the Earth's crust at this um, in this region was oceanic or continental. So we were doing some dredging and pulling up some rocks, and we were also doing some seismic mapping of the seafloor. So it was very far out of my um, my area. Like as as a biologist, I sort of didn't really have any idea what was going on. But I think it, that it was really really important for me to have that experience and get that context for what it means to first of all work in the field, but also get that context for where my data is coming from because I do work with really big data sets and and over long time scales as well so I obviously haven't had any part in collecting the data that I'm working with at the moment but um, I think having this experience on the investigator means that I I do have that context for where that data has come from and, and what that environment actually looks like and how my work fits into that. What's an average day on the boat like? (laughs) Yeah, good question. So uh, my shift was 2am to 2pm, which was was as about as much fun as as it sounds. Um, So I'd be up at 1.30 and sort of scrounging around the the galley for something to eat (laughs) because obviously the the cooks weren't off at that point. Um, And then... During during the night, we would be dredging. Um, so if a dredge had come up, we would be sorting rocks, scrubbing them, cleaning them. My job was to use the rock saw, which was so much fun. I had a great time doing that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, cataloguing them and sealing them and, and putting them into storage. Then when the sun rose, that's when we were able to start our seismic mapping. So that was we could only do that during daylight hours because we had to be really careful of um, whether there were any marine mammals in the area because it uses sound to map the seafloor essentially so uh and for you know our, our whales and our dolphins that use echolocation we we need to be really sensitive to them so during seismic operations we were essentially just uh glorified whale watchers so <laughs> we would sit off sit up the top of the boat and keep an eye out for for whales but also um log any birds that we saw so um yeah we all got pretty good at identifying uh the Southern Ocean Seabirds, which was really exciting. And then uh, it was really great. We also had a little bit of a science program where we all of the scientists would take turns giving seminars to, to everyone on board. So, you know, in the afternoon when, when you know, if we'd finish the seismic operations for that day, but we weren't ready to start dredging, we'd, we'd have a bit of a seminar and everyone got a chance to talk about their research. So, yeah, it was really, really cool. Yeah, that sounds like such a fantastic experience. Um the Southern Ocean and <laughs> Antarctica, it's its such a sort of abstract idea to me. And it's such a cold and formidable place that not many people would really go to. So how do you plan on sort of sharing your research with the public and making sort of Southern Ocean and Antarctic science more accessible to those that who probably wouldn't 
ever get a chance to go down there or even think about it. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really great point and it is something that uh, I think is something that as scientists we all need to be really aware of is the fact that often what we're studying and especially in the context of the Southern Ocean and Antarctica, uh, a lot of, it's not, it, it is an abstract and it is an abstract concept to a lot of people. It is not somewhere that they will go in their lifetimes. It's far away it's difficult to comprehend like uh, it's not like any kind of environment that we experience here um sort of further north um so it is really important to connect people with it on an emotional level in order to get them to care about it and to care about the science that we're doing because you know we can write as many papers as we want and but we the the jargon that tends to be used and the the paywalls that the the journal articles are often behind means that Oh, the science is accessible is is really inaccessible to people who don't have a scientific background. So we do have a responsibility to kind of make our knowledge accessible to people who who aren't in the scientific community. And so I'm involved in a few programs that kind of aim to bridge that gap. So uh, earlier or last year and and this year, I've been involved with the Frontiers for Young Minds program, which is uh, basically writing scientific articles for children. Um, which is is was actually far more challenging than I expected it to be. It was a real sort of brain bender trying to uh, frame my research in a way that that was accessible to kids, but um, was a really great experience in in actually yeah thinking about how I can make it accessible. But so there's a, a an Antarctic collection that's coming out sort of bit by bit there's articles being published um over the next um, months or so i think um so yeah if you've got any kids who are interested in antarctic research head to the frontiers young mind website um and give those articles a read because they're, they're absolutely fantastic um and we've been doing some exhibitions as well so there's one on at imas at, at the moment as well so anyone in hobart should come and check that out uh, and then we're also doing um a beaker street exhibition uh, uh this weekend actually so um that's that's a really great way to sort of get kids involved in it. Um, but then the the other side of that, the uh, uh, a way that you can kind of um, engage the broader community and something that I'm really interested in is uh, uh, the connection between science and art and connecting people to science through art. Um, and there are some really great programs that Australia uh, runs that where they would bring artists down to Antarctica or to the Southern Ocean. Uh, we, I think we took a, a choreographer down one voyage and, and they choreographed this uh, interpretive dance that then toured the world and, uh, you know, and, you know, visual artists and photographers and musicians and um, composers and there's so many wonderful ways that you can um, produce art that then connects people to that place and then all of a sudden they have an emotional connection to it and they're far more likely to care about it and to care about the science and, and advocate for change and for such a vulnerable environment, it really is important to have people advocating for its protection. Absolutely. 100% agree with everything that you just said. Unfortunately, by the time this episode will go out, Beaker Street would have already oh, no. happened. <laughs> so hopefully our listeners were there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hope they got on it. But it sounds like you're involved in so many other wonderful things coming up. Be awesome to keep looking at them. And speaking of things coming up in the future, you're headed to the end of your thesis. Are there any plans for what's next? I so I have a few conferences kind of on the horizon. There's one early next year that's zooplankton specific, so I'm looking forward to that, and I'll, I'm looking forward to yeah being involved in that. Um, but beyond that, I think I'm ready to kind of take a step back from academia just just in the in the short term. I'm not sure what the long term is going to look like, but because I love research and I love being involved in research and, and doing research, but I really think that there is 
huge value to be gained in um, getting a bit of context for the work that I'm doing. And, and I, 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 so I see value in kind of working for a few years um, before I engage in a PhD or, or something along those lines. So I think I would, I would like to travel for a while and, and see what opportunities I can kind of um, get elsewhere in the world and, and kind of broaden my perspective because I have I have gone straight from high school into my undergraduate and then into my master's and I do think that I my just because of that my my perspective is quite narrow and um very kind of like Australian centric so I think there's I have a lot to to gain from from traveling and 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 meeting people and engaging with science in other countries and that kind of thing um and then also yeah from working and hopefully working in the field ideally uh just getting more of that context for my research so that I can understand how uh it fits into the in into the world and and how I can how I can do that research really effectively so that it has it has meaning both for me and and um you know hopefully for for things like management and conservation and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's just so important. Mm. Absolutely. I think scientists kind of have a tendency to sort of be a little bit um, pinholed in what Mm. they're sort of thinking about and researching. Mm. So, yeah, it's really important to get that sort of breadth of knowledge. And, Mm. um, yeah, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what advice would you give to someone interested in pursuing a career in zooplankton modelling or (laughs) marine science? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I think I would say... I think you need to care about what you're doing. I think it's really important that you see value in your research. Um, and because I, I think that's another thing is people tend to, to do something just because, you know, they feel like they should or, or and, and I think, and that, that's another reason why I, I see benefit in kind of taking a break is because I, it's something that I want to be really sure about what I'm doing if, um, you know, I commit to a PhD or something like that. And so, yeah, I think... Um, exploring a little bit and like having a really open mind is so important for um yeah finding that thing that you really care about and you're super passionate about because when you do find it it is so exciting and it's such a wonderful thing to be a part of and that's one thing about the scientific community that I absolutely adore I I, and there's something that I do really enjoy about um being involved in IMAS and and uh, Hobart especially is really fantastic for it is the the there are so many scientists and they all care so much about their their little their their little thing and it's just so wonderful talking to people who just care so much about about their their field of research and that's is I think it's just so wonderful um so I think yeah having an open mind and and being um curious and yeah holding on to that excitement is I think is is my trick to to enjoying enjoying yeah being involved in science and involved in marine science specifically a fantastic way to end the episode today thank you so much sylvie and thank you listeners for tuning in to that's what i call science we love bringing you stem related content and hope you enjoyed the show if you love the show today you can get in touch with us by searching that's what i call science or that science Tans on facebook instagram and twitter my name is Ollie Duff and I'd like to extend a huge thank you to my new co-host who did amazingly, Katia Bando, and our zooplankton expert guest, Sylvie King. From us, we hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutrita, Tasmania.
This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio. So head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic.